Okay, guys, five o'clock. Ask me anything, number five. Take a look at this tan. We already have some super chat folks. I hope today we'll break the record of, I've, I only gave you a one hour notice today, uh, which as I said, I, I wouldn't. I would do all kinds of promotion to promote a live chat with the live stream, but I'm impulsive. I just felt like doing it. It's a bad weather day today in Montreal thunderstorms, torrential rains. I actually thought that maybe we'd lose electricity, so I was worried that we wouldn't be able to do this uh, super chat live stream. Anyways, we've got three, already three super chats, so let me get to them. Gary Brovetto, thank you, sir. Gad, do you have an original thought, or are your thoughts derived from notable scholars from antiquity to the modern era? Who is Who in your mind has an original thought that has inspired others? Well, of course, I've had many original thoughts. Uh, I founded a whole discipline called evolutionary consumption, the application of evolutionary psychology to consumer behavior. There are countless original thoughts in this book, in this book, in this book. Uh, this book is an edited book, so there are many original thoughts by many different authors. So, of course, all of my scientific work involves original thoughts, but, of course, you also are building on the work of others. You cite others. So there are countless people that have had original thoughts. Uh, so I'm not sure what else I can say. Uh, any work that one does is a combination of their own original thoughts and building on the works of other. As Newton said, said, you know, standing on the shoulder of a giant. In a sense, that's what's uh, spiritual about doing academic work in that you are bonded, you are connected through your ideas with the ideas of countless other incredible people in the past. In my current book that I'm writing, A Recipe for the Good Life, uh, you know, I'm going back to Epictetus. And uh, sometimes you think you had an original thought and then you go back to the literature and you say, God damn it, Epictetus, Epictetus already said that 2,000 years ago. So yes, of course, tons of original thoughts uh, are my own creation, but when appropriate, you cite other people's work. Thank you for that, Gary. Uh, moving on to Nick van der Klok. Uh, thank you for your donation. What do you think of the social identity theory, i.e. individual self-concept is derived from perceived membership in a relevant social group? I mean, that to me sounds like you're talking about identity politics in general. Look, uh, the group to which one belongs is part of one's identity, but it shouldn't be the only one. The problem with identity politics is that everything is placed on the shoulders of a group membership, right? So you as an individual, you don't have a unique personhood. You are just, you're black, you're white, you're transgender, you're, you're a black trans woman, you, right? So your personhood is erased and is uh, subservient to the group. And of course, that's wrong. In a, in a sane society, as we have had in a classical liberal society in the West, of course, your collectivist identity matters, right? I am from Lebanon. I am Jewish. That is part of my identity, but it's a small part of my identity. Much of who I am is the unique combination of genes that make up who God Saad is, all my merits and all my flaws. So there you have it. Thank you very much, Nick van der Klok. Let's move on to the next person. Uh, all right. Let's keep, you want your questions answered? Super chat me, people. Sid Dave, how you doing, sir? Thank you so much for your donation. Trans ideology is second, the most evil thing ever conceived after the religion of peace. How can we defeat these two evil cults as they are in power? Uh, 
trans ideology you spelt it t-r-a-n-c-e i'm not sure if what you mean there is it's a play on t-r-a-n-s i don't know if, if that's what you mean look there is no monopoly on evil there are many there are, there have been many ideologies that have caused all sorts of havoc to the world uh communism is not exactly a great uh ideology uh, you know communism slash marxism slash socialism has heaped all sorts of problems many religious ideologies have certainly leap re, uh, uh, garnered all kinds of nastiness including the religion of peace uh so you know there is no unique monopoly you know by which one ideology can claim to be the the absolute champion. I mean, yes, Nazism was uniquely evil. ISIS is uniquely evil. The religion of peace, certainly in its 1400 years of history, has caused a lot of havoc around the world. Some estimates place it at 300 million deaths uh, due to the religion of peace over the past 1400 years. So uh, look, the human mind, hence the parasitic mind, the human mind has the capacity to be parasitized by all sorts of ideologies. In some cases, you're only able to hoodwink 100 people. David Koresh was able to convince, you know, 100 or so people that he is the sort of final prophet, the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. And he he died in, a, you know, in, in, in infamy with all of his adherents. Uh, Jim Jones did the similar thing. So uh, I think that what is common across all these ideologies is the capacity for weak people to be parasitized by these uh, idea pathogens. So thank you for that. Said Dave, uh, going on to Dave the Goliath. What do you think about Depp Hard trial? The hashtag MeToo folks are saying women have been silenced rather than justice for uh, Johnny Depp. For me, Amber seems crazy. Look, I haven't followed it very closely. Uh, I spoke about it very briefly a few weeks ago when I was with uh, Joe Rogan on the you know, last time I appeared on the show. Uh, he won from the little that I've seen of the you know, I've seen sort of summaries of the, the trial. I didn't watch the actual trial. Uh, it seems as though, you know, the, the fair outcome uh, occurred. Uh, she seems to be, you know, a malignant narcissist. He seems to be kind of the aging, insecure guy who was, uh, you know, who chose the, the perfectly incorrect woman to, to be with because, uh, you know, she was probably fueling the jealousy fires, the possessiveness fires. Uh, you know, he's the aging guy. Maybe he slowed down a bit. She's the really in intoxicatingly alluring femme fatale. You put those two together, it ends up being quite ugly. Uh, I don't really see how anybody can draw anything from the trial's verdict to the hashtag MeToo movement. Uh, and so I think the, the correct verdict came out and uh, hopefully we can move on with our lives. Thank you, David the Goliath. Uh, let's move it on to Bartolome Esteban Murillo. Good evening, Dr. Saad. Do snake oil salesmen like Kendi or D'Angelo believe their charade and hogwash or are they well-intentioned extremists? I know one of the branch pieces admitted is all garbage. Yes, uh, I, I know exactly who you're talking about. You probably read it in the parasitic mind. Uh, I've always wondered that. Uh, I've always wondered whether many of these you know, purveyors of bullshit, whether in the deep recesses of their mind, whether they actually believe their nonsense. I'm almost certain that in the, the deepest of privacies of their thoughts, they know that they are charlatans. But I think the human capacity to, to engage in self-deception is quite limitless. 
Robert Trivers, the famous evolutionary biologist whom I was supposed to have a chat with on my show, and then it didn't eventually work out. I, I, I don't want to soil his name, even though um, he was quite terrible. He, he does suffer from mental illness uh, or has suffered from mental illness all of his life. He's still alive today. Uh, and he just went wild on me. He just was completely erratic. He was, I mean, literally insane. So we ended up not having the chat. Very disappointed that it didn't happen. But uh, he proposed a theory uh, many years ago on the evolutionary roots of self-deception. And he basically argued that in order for me to deceive you, I need to first believe the lie myself, right? So that I don't emit any micro cues that might be indicative of my trying to influence you. And so by first engaging in self-deception, I'm better able to then manipulate you. And so it's an evolutionary arms race between two parties when we are engaging in an interaction. One person is trying to identify if the other one is, is lying or being duplicitous or deceptive, and the other one is trying to shut off any signatures that might uh, you know, serve as signals that they are being duplicitous. And so, so to go back to your question about Kendi and the rest of those scammers, I think that they end up convincing themselves that they are doing something righteous so that they are able to go and give their seminars at $20,000 for an hour of complete BS. So, so yes, they convince themselves that they are spreading, uh, you know, truthful things, but I truly believe that in the deep recesses of their minds, they know that they are full of shit. Thank you for that, Bartolome. Let's move on. Keep those uh, super chat questions coming. We're off to a really good start, nine minutes in, only 100 people so far. Let's break at least 300 people. Uh, again, I know I only gave you a one-hour uh, notification. Silence, do good, only a donation. Thank you so much, much appreciated. Sid, Dave comes back. What do you think? Thank you so much for this additional uh, Super Chat donation. What do you think about the Nupur Sharma case in India? She has been accused of blasphemy against the so-called prophet. Terrorists are out to get her. I haven't followed that case uh, at all, but I think I know what you're talking about. This happens in many places where the religion of peace, uh, religion of peace, I'm guessing that's what you're referring to since you're talking about blasphemy against the prophet. And I don't think we're talking about the Jains or the Seventh-day Adventists here or uh, Lubavitch Jews. And so I'm, think, I'm guessing that you're talking about the religion of peace. Uh, this is what happens throughout the world. Now, usually it doesn't happen. I mean, it, it's less likely to happen in places where the religion of peace is in the minority, as in, as is the case in India. I think in India, maybe it's at around 15% of the population, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. But in places where the religion of peace is in the majority, that is actually a weapon that you use to subjugate the small and terrified minority. Because... Anytime your neighbor who happens to be a Pakistani Christian, you're, you're in Pakistan and you've got that heathen Pakistani kafir next to you and you asked his daughter in marriage and uh, she said no, well, what temerity does she have to say no to the noble faith? Then suddenly you concoct, hey, I heard, I saw her say something that was wrong against the, the noble Quran and then off we go with a blasphemy trial. That's the problem. In the 21st century, Nothing should be blasphemous, there, right? I mean, nothing. That's why in the parasitic mind, I talk about that any ideology, any religion, any belief system that cannot withstand scrutiny, mockery, criticism, 
then by definition is false. Because as I explained in the parasitic, parasitic mind, and I offer a few wonderful quotes from other authors, that which is truthful has to be anti-fragile, has to be, can't be brittle to, to being attacked. And so these uh, blasphemy charges typically in by adherence of the religion of perpetual peace uh, is something that should not belong in the 21st century. If your religion is the true religion, it should certainly it should certainly be able to withstand criticism. All right, let's move on. Thank you so much, Sid. Uh, let me go on here. Okay, Sid's coming back. He's on a roll. Thank you, sir. Did you see What is a Woman by Matt Walsh? It was funny when he tried to explain Oh, trans. Okay, so now I understand that you are uh, purposely uh, or purposefully, purposefully? No, oh, no, on purpose, purposely, uh, misspelling it maybe because you want to avoid the the noble censors uh i have not seen it uh i was contacted before the movie came out by uh daily wire by the folks you know who i guess produced the movie telling me if i wanted to uh, watch the premiere or you know have a code access code to watch it uh and then the idea was to invite matt walsh on my show uh, neither of which has happened yet. I haven't had a chance to to watch it yet because I was traveling and uh, haven't had a chance to invite uh, Matt Walsh on, but I, I love what he's doing. I've seen enough snippets of that movie to know that I'm going to enjoy it. I love his sort of deadpan, deadpan delivery. You know, he's very, very, you know, in, implacable. Uh, he delivers it, his questions and his, you know, his, his exchange in a very non-emotive manner, which can kind of confuse people, certainly the blue-haired uh, folks. Uh, so I haven't watched it, but I plan to, and hopefully we can make, uh, we can invite, you know, I can, I can have uh, Matt Walsh on The Sad Truth. By the way, tomorrow I'll be chatting, I'll be taping two chats. You're the first to hear this. See, that's why it's great to come on these impromptu live streams. Keep the super chats coming if you want your questions answered. Uh, tomorrow I'm speaking to Vikas Shaw, who is a gentleman. He's a entrepreneur out of England who created a, uh, a, a series of conversations with, you know, notable people. Uh, his platform is called Thought Economics. Uh, he's received some royal, uh, you know, title or, you know, how you, on the way to becoming knighted, you get different, uh, grades of, uh, you know, you know MBE, OBE, and then CBE is the commander of the British Empire. That's what gets you to be knighted. Uh, I think he's at the maybe MBE level, MBE, if I'm not mistaken, a member of the British Empire. Uh, we'll be chatting tomorrow. Very interesting guy. He's a guy, I don't, I don't think he minds me saying this because we're going to discuss this tomorrow. He's a guy who has suffered from anxiety and depression uh, for part of his life. So we'll talk about that. And notwithstanding that, he's a very productive guy, just a lovely human being. So that's the first guy I'll be talking to. And then after that, I'll be talking to John uh, Stadden, who's a professor emeritus of uh, biology and psychology. Actually, I'll show you his book. I'm going to be giving doing a promotion for him, Science in an Age of Unreason. Uh, so we'll be uh, chatting about his book. I'm not sure when I'll be releasing these two, but stay be on the lookout for these two. I have a whole bunch of other guests coming up. Uh, so yeah. So to, to conclude, yes, Matt Walsh will be on the show hopefully soon. We got Dash 4800. That's the, the, the handle name. Gad, have you seen what is a woman, Doc? Okay, yeah. 
Same question. It's crazy to see professors and doctors fail to answer questions about a topic they claim to be experts in. It's absolutely incredible. And it is exactly what demonstrates to you what happens to a parasitized mind, right? When it be, when you lose your ability, your, your epistemological confidence to be able to answer a question like, what is a woman? I think that's, that's what, what's brilliant about the book, uh, about that movie, right? Because it's just the question, what is a woman, right? And imagine if we thought 20 years ago to be having a, uh, you know, a, a whole cottage industry of discussions about what is a male, what is a woman, you, you'd say, this is insane. Who, who could be having these ridiculous conversations? Well, when you have an attack on reason, on, on the epistemology of truth, on, of, on the epistemology of reality, when you are constantly attacking that through all of the idea pathogens that I discuss in the parasitic mind, postmodernism, cultural relativism, biophobia, uh, militant feminism, uh, and, and social constructivism, and the rest of them, then you end up with a situation where people are no longer confident to express what is a woman i get emails from people asking me uh, professor i mean you're you're the evolution guy uh, i mean is it wrong to now say that only women menstruate or is it is it should we be saying that boys too can menstruate what's what's the right what's the science say professor so when 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 totally reasonable and you know normal decent people have lost the confidence in in being able to proclaim whether only women menstruate or not. And they have to seek the imprimatur of Dr. Saad to be able to tell them, no, no, it's still true. Only women can menstruate. Um, you can see what happens when bad ideas spread. And so, and I think, by the way, if I may speak again of, of my book, The Parasitic Mind, I think that's why it resonated so well because it has given a, a sense of rationality to people, right? I get a million emails from people saying, my God, I felt like I was going crazy. I thought I was losing my mind. I thought that everybody is insane around me, or maybe I'm the one who's insane. And then I read your book and I realized, no, they are really insane. No, I am the normal one. I am the rational one. And so that's why I think, uh, you know, my work has struck a chord with people. So thank you for that question. That was uh, Dash 4,800. Moving on to Sean Boda. Let me go go to Sean Boda. Where is he? I just missed him. Let me go back to him. Hold on a second. Yeah, here we go. Is it important to read the classical text in any field of knowledge or discovery, or is it more pragmatic to read the abstracts and skip to the modern literature? Well, that's a fantastic question. Why? That's one of the things. I mean, I've only done, this is my fifth one I'm doing of Ask Me Anything, and I love it because it caters to, you know, my kind of novelty, my variety seeking, right? Questions can come in any form, in any way. They could be personal questions. They could be academic questions. They could be political questions. And so here's an example of a fantastic question that I, you know, I couldn't have predicted. I, look, I really think it depends. Uh, I think you could understand a lot about uh, a topic without necessarily, you know, I can understand a lot about mathematics without necessarily going back and reading, uh, you know, an ancient treatise by Archimedes. Uh, there's been subsequent work that has distilled that work. So I don't have to go back and read the original, uh, you know, Principia by Newton. Uh, so it depends on the field. It's it's hard to say. And in some cases, if you really want to make a definitive statement about the hermeneutics of a text, let's say you want to talk about the exegesis of, uh, you know, the Quran. Well, it might be helpful to, to read it, to read the Quran, or of course, a translation of the Quran. If you don't read classical Arabic, you can... To, you can read a 
a, a, an, an interpretation or analysis of the Quran. So it really, I, I think it really depends on which field you're talking about. There are some seminal works that are, uh, you know, uh, necessary to read. I think, for example, it, it's, a, it's a great idea if you become an evolutionist or you want to train in understanding evolutionary theory that, you know, you read Origin of Species by Darwin. Uh, or at the very least, to, to, have re to read some secondary sources that summarize uh, that book very clearly because it is a fundamental building block of then everything else that comes in evolutionary theory. Uh, but let me answer it another way. I think, and this is something that I'm actually quite weak at, and I've, I've admitted to this, I think, in a previous um, Ask Me Anything. There are a lot of classical texts in literature that I think if you want to consider yourself, you know, a, a fully well-read person, you know, you should have, you should try to read, right? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm upset that if you give me the list of the hundred greatest literary works, you know, I may have not read many of them and that upsets me. Why? Because they've stood the test of time. I'm sure that they are, most of them are brilliant books and yet they haven't entered my brain yet. And I'd love to be able to one day say, you know what? I, I've read Catcher and I've read Crime and Punishment. Uh, Incidentally, I did read maybe the first 50, 60, 70 pages of Crime and Punishment many years ago, and then I, I stopped and turned my attention elsewhere. So again, it depends on which field you're talking about. In some fields, the classical foundational uh, books need to be read because they serve as building blocks. In other cases, you could read secondary summaries of those books. So it really depends. But thank you for that fantastic question. Uh, Milos Potic, best country to live in, raise a family, and have a potentially fruitful career? That's a, a question mark. Uh, best in terms of people, politics, culture, nature. Hello from Serbia. Hello, hello, Serbia. I was, I guess, not too far from Serbia recently. Uh, I was in Hungary. I'm, I'm supposed to be going to Croatia. I was invited, uh, I guess, around the time that COVID hit to Serb uh, to Croatia because uh, my the, the foreign rights of the parasitic mind were... Um, purchased in Croatia, and they wanted to invite me to come down and talk about the book. Uh, I'm not sure if the Croatian edition has been released yet. Uh, so maybe if I go to Croatia, I'll make it also to Serbia. Who knows? Uh, what is the best country? It, it's very, very hard to answer this question, um, you know, categorically, because it depends on the attribute importance weights that you assign to each of those things, right? Uh, so it's, you know, as someone who studies decision-making, I know that the question that you are asking me is impossible to answer without me eliciting from you your, your preference weights, right? Uh, so for example, to say, well, what is the best car to purchase professor? Well, it depends, right? Cause it depends. Are, are you someone who values, uh, a, you know, a green car, green meaning, uh, you know, Greta Thunberg green, I don't mean green color, uh, do you care about price? Do you care about uh, gas efficiency? Do you care about safety record? Do you care about zero to 60 performance? Uh, so depending on your attribute preference weights will determine uh, which is the optimal car. And depending on which decision rules you use will determine whether you choose car A, B, or C. So I can't tell you categorically, but let's go through your list here. You got uh, raise a family, uh, have a potential fruitful career. In terms of people, politics, culture, nature, I, I would say the one that offers you the greatest amount of freedom. So that might be one way that I could answer you in a categorical way. Look, Canada is a great place for some things. It's a horrible place for other things. Canada is now 
infested with idea pathogens. It's one of the most woke countries in the world. Why? Because we have a government that is a promulgator of these woke ideas. Justin Trudeau, as I said before, is a walking manifestation of every single idea pathogen that I cover in the parasitic mind. So that's not good. Canada is a horrible thing when it comes to financial freedom. Why? Because the government has you as a slave. As I've discussed, I don't want to keep harping on this, although I should keep harping on it forevermore. Uh, you know, the government took, stole all of my book royalties. Instead of now me having money that I can buy a condo in uh, Florida, uh, maybe retire three years earlier, that money's gone. It wasn't mine. It's not mine. It's my book. It's my ideas, but it's their money. So that's not a good place. So if you if you are entrepreneurial, if you have a can-do attitude, then the social welfare system is not the place for you. Now, if you are one of the 95 plus percent of people who benefits from the parasitic Ponzi scheme called socialism, then Canada is a haven. You could sit around, do nothing, and you know, schmucks like me will write best-selling books so that you so that you can get that money. So again, it it really depends. Uh, I would say a country that offers you maximal freedom, economic freedom, political freedom, uh, financial freedom, uh, that is consistent with your cultural values, right? Let's suppose that Saudi Arabia were to offer you all these things, but you can't speak your mind. Well, then that's not good. Uh, but maybe they'll give you financial freedom. Maybe they don't tax you heavily. So it's very, very hard to give you a definitive answer. But thank you for your question. All right, moving on. We got John Bork. Thank you so much for your contribution. What is your favorite variant of date? We get the dates from Iran, which are small and sweet, but the big ones we get seem a bit... Oh, variant of date. Okay, date as in the fruit. Okay, well, I guess here's one of those personal personal factoids that you may not know about me. Of all possible things to put in my mouth, one of the things that I despise the most are dates. As a matter of fact, in, there's a, in, the, in one of the Jewish holidays, you you eat dates, and I I literally can't take them. To me, they seem like, uh, you know, kind of uh, dried out cockroaches. In Arabic, we say sarsur. Uh, so I can't speak very intelligently about the different dates and which is my favorite one because I hate all of them. So my apologies that I can't offer you a more compelling uh, answer, but that's the truth. Sorry, John. Going back to Nick van der Klok, who is back. Guys, we're only at 131 people. What the hell is going on? What is happening? How is it that we're not at 1.3 million? <sighs> okay. Nick van der Klok, thank you so much for the contribution we got. Is there an evolution explanation for why people are always searching for meaning in life? What a fantastic question. What an unbelievable question. Well, I'm not sure that... There's a couple of ways I can answer that. I, I think that the search for... Okay, let, let me step back. In evolutionary theory, there are two mechanisms, if you'd like. There is there's what's called an adaptation. And I've, I've, I've described this in a previous Ask Me Anything. So if it sounds repetitive, it's because it's relevant to this question. So I'm not just being repetitive uh, for no purpose. Uh an adaptation is something that confers either a survival or reproductive advantage, right? So uh, the fact that, I, that we've all evolved gustatory preferences, taste buds uh, to, you know, to, to prefer fatty foods, uh, well, that's, that's an adaptation to the 
evolutionary environment that we've all evolved in whereby caloric scarcity and caloric uncertainty were uh, operative, okay? So that's a adaptation. An exaptation is a byproduct of evolution, meaning that something is there, not because itself it is, an, it is adaptive, but it's, it's path dependent. Because of other evolutionary processes, it led us to that. So for example, the, the classic example I like to give of an exaptation is the color of your skeletal system. The fact that the color of your of your actual bones is the color that it is is not an adaptation. There is no evolutionary adaptive reason for that. It is a byproduct of other evolutionary processes. So in engineering or and in evolution, you talk about path dependency. Okay. So my intuition is that we seek purpose and meaning. That's it's not itself adaptive but it is exaptive. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, it, there is no evolutionary advantage to seeking purpose and meaning, but it is a byproduct of having evolved this big prefrontal cortex, which then needs to find meaning because we have we have consciousness. We, uh, we know of our looming mortality, right? We're the only animal that we're aware of that knows that, you know, they're on a death sentence, right? Uh, and therefore... Uh, the quest for purpose and meaning might come as a byproduct of us having evolved this really ver very large uh, brain of ours. So that that would probably be the evolutionary explanation that I would give for meaning and purpose. But on, with, if I can decouple it from your question about you know the evolutionary roots of seeking to find purpose and meaning, I discuss in my forthcoming book and in, in a recipe for the good life. I talk about you know that finding a, a job that makes you maximally have, happy is typically one that does offer you purpose and meaning, right? Now, it doesn't, now, that doesn't mean that the only way that you can, you know, achieve purpose and meaning is through your job, but that is certainly the most direct way because much of our day, short of the time we spend with our family, is spent at our job. And so if your job is, is one that can offer you a path to having purpose and meaning, then you're you're well on your way to being to living a happy life. So one of the things that one of the things that I talk about in this next book, I don't want to give too much away from it. I want you guys to hopefully purchase it and enjoy it. And by the way, it's very very nerve-wracking when you know you're coming off a book like The Parasitic Mind, you know, you wonder is the next book going to be as successful, you know, is it going to disappoint people? So I really hope that uh, it's a completely different genre in this case, right? Uh, so I really hope that you guys will enjoy it. But in that book I talk about that one of the ways that we can uh, obtain purpose and meaning through our jobs is if the job that we choose is one that caters to our creative impulse. Okay, so let me let me break that down again. Uh, there are many kinds of jobs. You could be an accountant. You can be a corrections officer. You can be a police officer. You could be a fireman. All of these things are noble jobs. They're needed jobs. They're honest jobs uh, conducted with dignity. So that's all good. But you don't necessarily create. A, a chef creates an architect creates, an author or professor creates, you create new knowledge, then you disseminate it, right? Uh, so I don't mean create only in the intellectual realm. As I said, a chef creates, a painter creates. And so I think that there is something very unique about the creative impulse, right? That if we're able to answer the call of creativity and actually find a voice by which our creative impulse is... Uh, is tickled, if you'd like, 
then I think it becomes really easy to find purpose and meaning. I mean, think about, you know, my receiving emails from around the world, from, from people in Qatar and Bolivia and uh, uh, Japan and, you know, on, sitting on the beach and playing with their dog and they have copies of the parasitic mind and they send me messages. Oh my God, I loved your book. I read it. Well, that's, that's not an, it's not because I, it's not because it caters to my ego or it's a narcissistic thing. It's because I sat down, I opened the, the laptop one day and I started striking that first syllable. And then 12, 14 months later, there's a draft. And then that draft gets sent to the publisher. And a year later, that book comes out. I created this. Hence, by the way, that's why the taxes were so hurtful to me because it wasn't based on you taking money from my regular paycheck. It came from the deepest depths of my soul, right? And so there's purpose and meaning in that. It, right now, this conversation, we're, we're creating links between ideas. It's a creative process. This, this conversation is going to then be uploaded fully on my channel. Before we've had this conversation, this whole interaction hadn't happened. And yet now we together, right, with the people who are here and me answering your questions, we're creating something together. That's a beautiful thing. So I think that if you are able, I understand that people have pills to pay and they have mouths to feed and they can't all, you know, instantiate their creative impulse. But if you can, I think that that's one clear path to living a a life full of purpose and meaning. Thank you so much for that question. Let's go on to Nova. Is woke culture not just the Trojan horse for socialism and it's true or not the Trojan horse himself? Uh, I mean, woke culture incorporates certainly many idea pathogens that are fully consistent with socialism, right? Socialism, it's about the collective, right? Screw the one person who stands out. Let's hammer them so that we can all be equally miserable. So Identity politics is about collectivism. So I don't think they're interchangeable. I don't think that they're synonymous with each other. But certainly many of the elements of wokeism are consistent with socialism. That's why, you know, you got the blue-haired Taliban who are also, you know, viva la revolution, Che Guevara, right? It's because a lot of the ideological reflexes of these two groups of morons are perfectly consistent with each other. So thank you for that very much. Uh, we're going to Ronnie S. Thank you very much for your contribution. I generally lean right wing, but I find it difficult to support them when they deny climate change, go against vaccines, gun control. Can they change? Uh, I mean, uh, it depends what you mean. Uh, go against, for example, gun control. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm a supporter of uh, you know having the people should have the right to defend themselves. And so I'm a lot less into Justin Trudeau, who said literally about a week ago, Canadians don't have a fundamental right to protect themselves. Literally, go check it out on the internet, right? That is uh, subcontracted to the state, right? So if someone is attacking me, I don't have a right to just pull out a gun and say, back off or I'll shoot you. You can't rape me or rape my daughter. I should call the, the noble police and they will come. They have the guns, right? Uh, so does that make me a right-wing hack who sleeps with my sister and uh, goes duck hunting and uh, has a dog called Roscoe? Or, or do people have a right to have varying opinions on uh, issues that are quite charged? 
climate change, uh, okay, uh, we can all agree that climate change is taking place, but we can also debate whether we should be spending trillions of dollars over the next hundred years in a massive uh, redistribution of, of wealth across the globe uh, so that we can reduce some metric by 0.02%. So in other words, the fact that climate change is happening, we don't know how much of it is due to natural cycles versus human, you know, man-made. That's part one. And part two, if we completely concede that it is man-made, that doesn't mean that we all agree on what should be done to fight that, how much money should be spent to fight that, and so on. So, so I'm not sure I agree with the general premise of your question because while some things are incontrovertible as scientific facts, so you know, th- is evolution a mechanism that has been validated in 73 trillion different ways across millions of species? The answer is yes. This is a scientific fact. Even though if tomorrow we found data that falsified it, then we'd have to accept that. But when it comes to climate change and gun control, and by the way, vaccines, I I am not, somebody's going to be disappointed and write to me that I'm an asshole and so on. But I've been vaccinated now, I think, I don't know if it's twice or three times, I can't remember. Uh, So I conceded to the vaccine experts that this is something that I should do. But I think people in a free society have the right to their body autonomy. Uh, I understand that it's a communicable disease. But ultimately, it's quite a slippery slope to say you better get vaccinated in exactly the schedule that we tell you to or else you cannot be a member of society. You're effectively sent to gulag number 13. So I'm sorry. I hope I didn't disappoint you, but I'm not so sure that when it comes to climate change and vaccines and gun control, you know, the jury is out. The science is settled. There is no more debate. Uh, There are certainly many interesting and worthwhile debates for very reasonable people to have on both sides of that aisle. Thank you very much. We're at 166 people. I'm not going to be happy unless I see at least 300 people. Let's go, guys. Okay, Ronnie S., and I'm going on where I'm looking for some super chats. You want me to answer your question? Super chat me. Danny Haddad, I just saw. Hold on a second. And I'm sure you like the way I said that with the Arabic accent. Hold on. Let me go back. Where is it? Where is Danny? Oh, there's Danny Haddad. Uh, Gad, where have you been all my life? Oh, well, aren't you sweet? I'm right here, sugar. Look at that. Look at that. Here, look. Look at those green eyes. Look at that widow's peak. Look at that square jaw. Look at those full lips. I've been here all along. You just didn't find me. Welcome to Team Reason, Danny. Uh, okay. Loved your book. Only found you about a month ago. I think the biggest parasite for our race is religion. Do you think we can ever cure humanity from this plague? I'm going to severely disappoint you right now because I I get the sense that you're not a fan of religion. I think that the default value for humans is to be believers, meaning to be religious, even though I'm not religious, right? So uh, if you ask me, what is the default value for humanity to be non-believers or to be believers, then I'm going to say that the evidence is overwhelmingly in the camp of most people are never going to become, you know, atheists. And there are several interesting uh, explanations that I can offer. Let me offer a few here. Number one, as I mentioned earlier, we are the only animal that is aware of its mortality. 
right? As I mentioned, I think in one of the earlier Ask Me Anything, Robert Sapolsky's book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcer, Ulcers, fantastic book, speaks exactly to that point. The zebra doesn't sit there and say, oh my God, my left sucks. There are predators everywhere about to eat me. Rather, zebras go about their business. They live in the moment. And if they are, you know, are being hunted down, they run really fast. They instantiate their flight mechanism. If they're caught, they die. If they don't, they live another day. So they don't get uh, ulcers because they don't have a sense of their past and of their future. They live in the moment, truly, in the true sense of live in the moment, seize the day, carpe diem, right now. Uh, on the other hand, humans are aware of their past. They, they, they wallow in their past. They get anxiety about what's going to happen in the future. What if this? What if that? They're aware that the party is going to end one day. They're aware of their mortality. That's not a nice thing. Nobody wants to think about their mortality. And so, as I've explained previously, I've analogized the following way. Uh, when you have high cholesterol, you go see your doctor. He, he or she gives you a statin. Boom, your cholesterol goes down. Okay, fine. That's salt. If you have uh, high blood sugar levels, boom, there's your insulin shot. How do we deal with your mortality angst? There is no pill. There is no shot. Oh, but wait a minute. There is a pill. There is this pill called religion. Join my religion and I guarantee you immortality. You're going to be sitting at the table with Jesus. You're going to be seeing Uncle Joe again. You're going to see that four-year-old kid that you lost tragically to leukemia. So number one, we know of our mortality. Number two, life can be tough. Life has curveballs thrown at you that are immeasurably cruel. How could it be that, you know, life can be so unjust that, that your beautiful child was stricken with cancer when they were four? Oh, don't worry. God works in mysterious ways. God calls his angels first to be by him, by, him, by their side. So religion has wonderful functional benefits. So that's one of the things that a lot of people always misunderstood about my position. They, 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 they thought that I was anti-religion. I'm not. When I'm putting my hat on of the, you know, the captain of reason, the, you know, the, 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 the science defender, the truth dogged defender, then I say, hey, when, when, when religion tries to step into the ring to try to explain natural phenomena and scientific phenomena, uh, then I don't like it. I don't, I know, no, God didn't put the, the rocks to look like they were 2 billion years old, but really it's 7,000 years old. I don't, I don't tolerate that bullshit because I don't care where the bullshit is coming from. Just because you wear a cute robe with a cool hat doesn't mean that you're allowed to be the purveyor of bullshit. That's what I hate. I hate when, uh, Parents who who are uh, uh, part of one particular religious sect where they're not supposed to take medicine will allow their child to die because they're supposed to only pray to God. And if it's God's will that the child recovers, he will recover. But if he doesn't, then it was God's will. No, I'm not sympathetic to that because the right for that child to exist supersedes your bullshit religious rights. So in that sense, I'm hostile to religion. But I'm not at all hostile to religion in that I recognize the functional benefits that are accrued to those who are religious. So very, very philosophical and long-winded answer to your question, Mr. Haddad. But my point is, 
that I don't think will ever get rid of the religious impulse. Just the answer to Mr. Haddad was worth the entry to this thing. Where are your super chats? Come on, people. Support those who are putting everything in the line for you. And some, some idiot wrote, oh, he's doing these just for the money. Well, of course, I'm not doing it just for the money, but I'm doing it in part because, yes, my time should be monetized. If, if you invite me to give a talk, I get paid. If I go do consulting, I get paid. If you go see your dentist, you pay them. If you go see your vet, you pay them. So me opening up two hours of my time, it's not exactly, you know, Jews are going to Jew by asking for money for their time. Uh, sorry, asshole, whoever wrote that. But uh, yeah, it's normal that people would like to have their time and expertise monetized. So to all those who are donating, I appreciate it very much. The Hobby Guy, dear Dr. Saad, I very much appreciate your work. Keep up the good fight. See you under the desk. Uh, okay. Uh, is this mean you want to come under the desk with me or we will both synchronize our fears so that we both hide under the desk at the same time? I think you meant the latter, in which case... Yes, sir. See you under the proverbial desk. Thank you so much for your contribution. Much appreciated. Moving on to, oh, we got Plastic African. Thank you so much for your contribution. Which philosopher do you think is most suited for young people of today to read? And how would Freud and Sartre fit into that? Oh, boy. Uh, okay, so Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, I guess existentialism would be his thing. Freud, you know, all the psychoanalytic stuff. I mean, not a huge fan of either. Although, you know, uh, I do talk about existential issues in the next book when I discuss uh, living an authentic life as a way to forestall regret later in life, right? If you live an authentic life, you don't need to wake up when you're 62 and say, you know what? I never wanted to be an accountant. I hate my life. I only became an accountant because my dad forced me to become an accountant. An accountant. That was an inauthentic life. And so, uh, so I'm not going to situate it in the context of Freud or Jean-Paul Sartre, but rather I'll answer the first part of your question. Which philosopher do you think is most suited for young people? Uh, it's it's too vague of a question because different philosophers do different things. Some are complete utter bullshit. I mean, literally every word, every syllable that they say is completely nonsensical, non-applicable, non-relevant garbage. Okay, It's just philosophizing as a form of orgiastic mental masturbation. That's not what I'm talking about. I like philosophers who are deep, but by speaking clearly and concisely. You don't need to engage in faux profundity in order to appear as though you're deep. As a matter of fact, the, the, the most deep speakers, the deepest thinkers are actually those who can engage the masses and people take a lot from them. They don't need to be couching it in bullshit. Uh, so I can't give you one guy because it depends. I mean, if you are a young person who's interested in philosophy of science, then I'm going to say Karl Popper. If you're someone who's interested in the historical origins of uh, cognitive behavior therapy, I'm going to say read Epictetus. Uh, so I can't give you one answer, but I'm, I'm guessing by young people, you mean someone who can motivate you, who can, uh, you know, so anybody who preaches a message of personal responsibility, personal agency would be someone that would be worthwhile to read. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why I, decided to write my latest book because I saw that as I developed this, you know, really big platform, that one of the things that people seem to really connect with, I mean, they connect a lot with, with you know, with my intellectual stuff, my scientific stuff, you know, with my humor and satire and so on. But whenever I would give advice to people, I noticed that 
people really took to that, right? And even in cases where I thought that the advice was, you know, pretty self-evident, you know, come on, assume personal responsibility, get up, don't, don't sit there on the couch and play video games all day. People felt motivated. And so I thought, you know what? I mean, I've got a lot deeper things to say than just these kind of basic uh, pieces of advice. Why don't I, and people would always also write to me and say, you know, you always seem to be happy and effusive and full of spunk and, you know, spirit. You have a twinkle in your eyes. What's the secret to you being so happy? I said, okay, well, you know what? Even though there have been many, many people who've written about happy life, about, you know, the Dolce Vita, the, the sweet life, why don't I take a crack at writing my own version of that book? Which, by the way, speaks to the first question that the first person asked when he said, you know, how much of someone's work is their original ideas versus borrowing from other people? And of course, you know, you know, of course you have tons of original ideas. I mean, there's tons of stuff that 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 I have done that you know I have pioneered but of course you know even when I pioneered the use of evolutionary psychology in consumer behavior but there was a guy who came up with the theory of evolution called Charles Darwin there's the pioneers of evolutionary psychology Martin Daly and Margot Wilson and David Buss who were the pioneers of evolution so I am a pioneer in many things and now and then of course I used other people's work as foundations for some of my work and so to go back to your question, uh, the reason why I decided to write uh, this book, uh, which I hope many young people will read, is that I wanted to demonstrate to people, well, there are two elements to li living a happy life. Part of it is genetic, right? About 50% of the variants on happiness come from your genes, and that really you can't control. But the good news is, I'm giving away here a lot from the next book. I still hope that you will pre-order it when it, when it comes out. Um, but there's still 50% that's within your control. That's a lot. Now, if you said, for example, height, height is pretty much fully genetically determined. And so therefore very little of what you can do in your personal unique life trajectory is going to, you know, alter what your height is going to be. But when it comes to happiness, you know, half the cake is under your control. And so, what I wanted to do in writing this book is to both offer a bunch of personal anecdotes. You know, what, why is my marriage successful? What's unique to the, the unique combination of the two parties, myself and my wife, that makes for this happy union? But then I wanted to back up all those personal anecdotes by, you know, all kinds of uh, science and all kinds of references, going back to the ancient Greeks, but also all of the latest empirical science and the behavioral sciences and psychology and neuroscience and positive psychology uh, and happiness studies. And so it's really a combination of both my personal anecdotes and personal experiences coupled with science. So I really hope that you like it. So to answer your question again, uh, I don't think there is a unique philosopher that is suited for young people. It really depends on what they're looking for, but not surprisingly, by the way, one of the reasons why Jordan has been so successful is because his, uh, you know, the, the first of his two last books, uh, 12 Rules for Life, it has really resonated with a lot of young people, especially young men. So, and, and I'm not sure if he knew all of that a priori. So there you go. Okay, moving on to the next person. Keep those uh, super chats coming. Dear Godfather, this is Bartolome Esteban Murillo, who's come back. Thank you so much. Dear Godfather, I hope you write a sequel of The Parasitic Mind. Don't doubt you will mention Justina and Hap and VP. Uh, VP Harris to Luminary Prize in Montreal. You're actually exactly right. Justin Trudeau went to school 
about 15 minutes from where I currently live. Absolute moron. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if you, you guys have a sense. I don't know if, if you have to have been from the Montreal culture. He really exemplifies all of the, the traits of the kind of entitled, privileged, uh, moronic, scammer, you know, Montrealer who comes from money, who's kind of a, a, a trust fund kid who went to these particular schools, was probably a scammer, probably was scamming through all of his education. You know, his highest his highest accolade was to be a substitute drama teacher until he became a politician. I mean, think about that. He wasn't a banker. He wasn't a surgeon. He wasn't a professor. He wasn't, you know, a, a businessman. He, he, was, he, he, hadn't, he hadn't done anything. His highest accolade, his, the highest heights that he had reached was substitute drama teacher. Uh, not exactly neurosurgery. And then now he decides how my taxes are spent. He decides what happens to the book royalties of the parasitic mind. Uh, so he's from Montreal. And then the, the other, I mean, uh, Professor Dr. Kamala Harris, I mean, she is just, a, today she said, you know, think about it. I mean, the internet, and then she pauses because it's very profound. If you pause, it's profound. The internet, I mean, it's here with us. It's part of us. It's, it's important. God damn, who could come up with such brilliance? On, in related news, oxygen, Whew, we need it. Here's other news. The sun, we can't live without it. Jumping in a pool makes you wet. You know, all these great, brilliant insights. She also happens to have grown up in Montreal. She actually went to school, Westmount High, not too far from where I live. I actually, you ready for this factoid? I played soccer against her bullshit high school uh probably 1981 we were almost the same age so she would have been at that school she probably would have been the one who is fantasizing about the star soccer player on the opposite team meaning yours truly now i hate to say this now it shows you how confident i am and honest to say this i believe that when we went to play them i used to go to west hill high school and she was at westmont high school by the way, I don't think I've ever mentioned the story publicly. So another reason for coming on these live stream super chats. We tied 3-3. It was a wet, uh, rainy day, not unlike today outside here. And we tied 3-3, very heavy, muddy field. And the ref had called a penalty for us, penalty kick. And I came up to take it. And it was basically a penalty kick with me taking it. It's like a 99.9% .9 guaranteed that I'm going to score. But given the heavy mud and so on, I took a horrible kick. The goalie saved it. And I missed the penalty shot. And that memory just got triggered in my head that that was against Westmount High School while the little moronic Kamala Harris was probably sitting in the on the, on the benches fantasizing over the glorious... Dr. Sad, I mean, I wasn't Dr. Sad then. I was just a 16-year-old kid. Uh, and I failed to impress her on that day because I missed the penalty kick. Maybe that's why she didn't ask me to the prom. Thank you so much, uh, Bartolome. Let me put on back my glasses again because without them, I can't see anything. We've got Andrew Camerena. Thank you, sir, for your contribution. Who do you think will win the World Cup? Oh, 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 oh. Now, all these other questions were just, you know, a little preamble. We're just warm-up. They were foreplay. But now we're getting into the real thing. We were talking about, you know, religion and, you know, existential issues. But now we're talking about the real religion. We're talking about football or, of course, 
as the Americans and Canadians say, soccer. Who do you think will win the World Cup? Do you still believe Messi doesn't have the aptitude for leadership? Thanks for everything. I'm a huge fan. Thank you so much, Andre. I really appreciate it. Uh, look, Messi, I'll answer the who's going to win the World Cup in a second, but uh, it is true that Messi is a timid guy. He's not an over-the-top guy. He's not a guy who kind of walks. He really is a guy who just does his leadership through his unbelievable stratospheric extraterrestrial talent, talent that like we've never seen before and probably never see again. Uh, so yes, I understand from a psychological temperament perspective, he doesn't have those leadership traits, but so what people are made of different cloths and uh, you know, his leadership is by, you know, uh, leading through example. Uh, so that's not an issue for me. Who will win the World Cup? Well, certainly Argentina is looking like this is their best squad. They just won the uh, Copa America uh, against Brazil in Brazil. Uh, they won the uh, uh, Finalissima, I think it's called. It's the winner of the uh, Copa, uh, South America versus the winner of Europe. They played Italy. They beat them 3-0. Uh, so certainly you have to include them. It's, it's the usual suspects. It's Argentina. Brazil, I mean, I'd love to think Belgium for several reasons. Number one, Belgium has never won it. By the way, Belgium, um, there's only been eight countries that have won the World Cup. For those of you who don't know, let me list them to you very quickly. Uruguay, Italy, Germany, France, Spain, England, Brazil, Argentina. Eight countries have ever won the World Cup. Where is the diversity, inclusion, and equity there? How come Namibia has never won? Why hasn't an Islamic country ever won? No transgender countries never won. No transgender country of colors never won. FIFA must be bigoted. So only eight countries have won it, right? And I would love to see a new country win it. Now, Belgium has their golden generation. Aidan Hazard, uh, Witzel in midfield, Lukaku. But of course, the greatest of them all, De Bruyne who's forgetting about Messi. Messi, of course, is my favorite player, but Messi doesn't count as a human being. De Bruyne is the greatest human player today. He's gorgeous to watch. His, his footballing IQ is off the charts. He's Einstein. He can find passes. He's got the vision like nobody else. So I'd love to see Belgium win. Will they choke at the end? Who knows? France is always there. So those are probably. So it's going to be France. I don't think Germany is going to take it this year. I don't. England sucks. England always sucks. Sorry, my English fans. Come on, England. Come on, stop it. People are sending me, oh, yeah. England's basically Millwall in the second division. Stop it. Okay. So we've got France, Belgium as kind of possible ones, Brazil, Argentina. That's it. There you have it. Thank you, Andrew. Chris D., Books rooted in evolutionary and social psychology have helped me immensely in my relationship with social life for years. Do you have a recommendation for a seminal or definitive book for parenting? Now, I don't know if you mean a book of parenting that is rooted in, in the evolutionary lens, or do you mean just a book of parenting in general? You know, Dr. Spock from the 50s and 60s, or I think 60s, 70s, was a parenting book, but it wasn't necessarily rooted in evolutionary theorizing. If you're looking for a parenting book with an evolutionary lens, uh, I, I, so I don't know so much, you know, the popular books on parenting, uh, but the field of evolutionary developmental psychology is one that, you know, might cater to your request because developmental psychology is of course the study of 
you know, cognitive and emotional development of children as they grow up. So that could certainly be related to parenting. Ev evolutionary developmental psychology is studying development via an evolutionary lens. So you might want to check that stuff out. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Chris. And I'm wondering, by the way, which of the evolutionary social psychology books you're thinking about? The, uh, there's a quote that I often use in my lectures when I talk about the lack of consilience in psychology. It's a book by, uh, I think it's a quote by Kenrick, Doug Kenrick, who's a pioneer in evolutionary psychology, Doug Kenrick and uh, Jeffrey Simpson, where they're saying they're lamenting the fact that you know, a typical social psychology book has many different chapters and each of the chapters are perfectly unrelated to each other. They're not tied together via some unifying framework. And of course, the unifying framework is, drum roll, evolutionary psychology, of course. So there you have it. Okay, moving on. 177 people. Uh, thank you so much for all the other comments. Uh, thank you to the person who feels my pain at the 58% taxes. Uh, by the way, that's one of the reasons that you can, in a small way, pay me back is to super chat me here. By the way, everything that you super chat, they take more than half of it. So there's no way to escape the perpetual existential theft. Anything that I do, unless I don't declare it, which is not my style, although I truly think that it is immoral that we are willing victims of this existential theft. But so if you have the possibility to do so, please consider contributing and I'd be happy to read your question as a super chat. We're one hour into it. I, I'd always thought of only doing one hour, but my four previous Ask Me Anything have been two hours long. Let's see if we can go further. Uh, we've got Kick Jack. Thank you so much for your contribution. About viewers, try going on popular stream to specifically promote your live show. Rakieta Law gets 10,000 live and said he'd love to have you on. Oh, okay. I think someone else mentioned him in a previous one. So I'll have to, if, if anybody's watching and knows, tell Rikyata Law if there's a way that he can help in growing my uh, thing, I'd be happy to go on. Uh, let's make it happen. I'm assuming that he's got a big platform. If yes, and he's a you know worthy guy to go on his platform, I'd be happy to consider it. Uh, so thank you for that, Kick Jack. Uh, oh, I think I just skipped a whole bunch. Let me go back a bit. Uh, hold on a sec. Oh, yeah. I still haven't found a way to to manage the uh, the Gad's thoughts on DeSantis 2024. You, you got to put that in a super chat, Chachi. Okay, wait a second. Where is everybody? Hold on, hold on. I got to go back to the last guy. Uh, hold on, guys. Okay, Kick Jack, I just covered him. I'm going on to the next guy. Sean Buddha. Oh, thank you. You're back. Round two. The Fortune 500 companies benefit from parasitic ideas. Is the noble debate weighing freedom, order, and equality being hijacked by commercial idiocies? So the way I'm going to answer that, I think it's through this idea of woke capitalism. I wrote an article uh, for Arabian Business. They, they, they commissioned me to write a few articles for them. Uh, they're an outfit out of Dubai. And my first article for them uh, was one where I talked about the various stages of the relationship between a company and its customers. And actually, I, I take up that topic again in my most recent book. And I basically argue that the, the final, the fourth stage in the 100-year relationship between corporations and consumers is now what we have, woke capitalism, which is provide a product that the customer wants, 
without harming any third parties, other people, the environment, other employees. And fourth, while being socially justice engaged, right? So that's the woke part. Uh, and it turns out that, and the reason why I kind of discuss it in the book is because one of the chapters in the person uh, in the recipe for the good life is on uh, the inverted you, right? Too little of something is not good, too much of something is not good, and somewhere in the middle is just right, the sweet spot. And so, you know, if you're a company that 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 you know runs your 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 business like your testosterone charged, you know, hashtag me too boiler room, then it's probably on the wrong side of the curve. If you are, you know, doing a, a, a transgender uh, drag queen twerking to kids while explaining the joys and love of sodomy to five year olds, you've probably become too woke. Uh, and so somewhere in the middle is the ideal spot. And so the answer, I think, to your general question is that in the long run, no, they, the Fortune 500 companies don't benefit from these parasitic ideas because the, the market autocorrects itself. Most people, most, most of the members of the silent majority hates this crap. And we saw it with Netflix. We saw it with Disney. People say, you know, I've had enough of your bullshit. You've gone too far on the woke curve. And so... That's the beauty of freedom and the free market is that it is the perfect autocorrective mechanism for adjudicating between good and bad ideas, good and bad products, and so on and so forth. So there you have it. Thank you very much. Milos Potic is back. I have no idea what that uh, currency is. RSD, maybe Serbian? I don't know. I don't think religion is a plague. I love Jordan Peterson's take on it, yet I do realize most religious people are not religious in the way he is. Yeah, um, you know, the the way that Jordan uh, positions his position on religion starts to smell like a lot of postmodernist stuff. And, and as you all know, I, I love Jordan. He's a very good friend. He just a couple of weeks ago was in Montreal, invited me to dinner, invited me to a show. My wife and I went to see him, blah, blah, blah. So... Anything that I say, I, I don't need to preface it with we're great friends and so on. But you know, I don't, I don't like the fact that when he's asked a very direct question like, you know, that, you know do you believe in Jesus' reincarnation story? What, what do you mean by Jesus? What do you mean by is? What do you mean by belief? What do you mean by reincarnation? What do I mean? It's a complicated story. It's really not that complicated. Do you believe in Jesus's reincarnation story? I said it very slowly. It's all very clear. There's nothing. So I think that in part stems from the fact that uh, he's equivocating to appeal to different segments. I think that none of those questions are very difficult. If you ask me, do I believe that there is a celestial guy who's listening into my thoughts? No. I think it's utter bullshit. I think it's imbecilic to believe that. I'm very clear. I don't need to equivocate to placate anybody's feelings. Okay. I don't have any evidence that there is a celestial guy who's listening to my inner thoughts and who punishes me and rewards me. I know that there is such a guy. It's called Santa Claus. Okay. So, uh, so I don't now, of course, other parts of his views on religion, uh, you know, as, as you know, in terms of the folkloric elements, the, the mythology, the symbolism, some of that stuff I can get behind. Some of it, of course, has evolutionary explanations, so I can support that. But, you know, when he, for example, went with the, I've already seen this clip a long time ago, and then I heard that, it, that he doubled down on it with Richard Dawkins in his talk that, you know, ancient uh, people had already 
predicted the double helix structure of DNA via the, the two serpents. Yeah, I don't think so. So, you know, as any good friends should have, this is something that we disagree on, but I have nothing but love and respect for the man. So there you have it. Uh, Celery, thank you so much for your contribution and your statement is thank you for your service sir well thank you you're lovely i really appreciate it thank you so much this is really fun i am so sorry that i don't sit and read all the other comments there are you know, probably thousands at this point but this is what compels you if you want me to read your question please consider contributing uh via super chat we got benoit meunier comment ça va benoit we have a French-speaking gentleman. How user-centered approaches, for example, user experience design can benefit from evolutionary psychology? Oh, what a question. Now, again, imagine this, right? I open myself up to, well, I can't believe only 181 people. 100 Out of all the people in the world, all the fans, only 182 thought that it was worthwhile to come and see me. That hurts my feelings, people. But thank you for being those hardcore fans who are here. So I really appreciate that. It's amazing, right? Because who could have thought about this question other than just opening myself up? So thank you so much for that question. In a sense, it marries my background in computer science with my subsequent work in decision-making with evolutionary psychology. So you're you're hitting all of the different intersection points of all of my long uh, educational trajectory. Uh, definitely it benefits, right? Because there are certain aesthetic elements certain ergonomic elements that are either alluring, captivating, attention-grabbing or not. And those elements are yes or no as a function of whether they adhere to certain evolutionary principles. So it is undoubtable, it is incontestable that uh, the design of rich user experience interfaces benefits from evolutionary theory. And there are, by the way, some work that has looked at that. And, and I have actually contributed some works within that space. I have, for example, two book chapters with uh, two of my former uh, graduate students uh, where we looked at uh, video games, video game designs, for example, the types of avatars you choose and how those choices are rooted in certain evolutionary mechanisms, right? Uh, and so... To answer your question in a you know very vague way, but I, I hope specific enough to give you a sense, it, it is absolutely the case that there are some elements of the aesthetic choices that we make in these design choices and ergonomic choices that are well-founded on evolutionary principles. The same thing applies, by the way, for architectural design, right? So the field of biophilic architecture or evolutionary architecture is what? It's basically saying that in order to create maximally effective architectural designs, some of the design principles have to adhere to biophilic principles. Biophilia is innate nature of uh, innate love of nature. E. O. Wilson, right? So, having a wind, uh, having rooms that have sunlight come in, that have a a window to the world. Uh, having places where there is greenery, where there is sound of waterfall. There's all kinds of architectural solutions that have been shown to, you know, increase the amount of time that people spend browsing in a store, cause students to have better grades, uh, uh, lessen the amount of time that patients stay post-surgery 
as a function of whether they were placed in a room with a window or not. I, I discussed this research in my upcoming book. So to answer your question, absolutely yes. All right, moving on. Calm on ground. Keep fighting the good fight, sir. What's giving you hope right now? What's giving me hope, uh, I think, is the fact that a growing number of people within the silent majority, I'm not talking about, you know, the, the people with the large platforms who are speaking out. Those people are still there, still doing their thing. But it's the the person who didn't have a platform, but then said, I've had enough. So it's it's Christopher Rufo becoming the anti-CRT guy, CRT critical race theory, who then uh, energizes parents to say, I've had enough. I'm going to my school board meeting and telling my, uh, the, my uh, woke teachers not to have drag queen twerking for pride week uh not to have critical race theory that says my children are pieces of shit because they're white so i think what's giving me hope is that i'm starting to see a slow you know uh, putting the fire on people's feet to compel them to get engaged which of course in what in chapter eight i talk about activate your inner honey badger so i think i'm seeing more and more people finding their animal uh, their spirit animal being the honey badger and they're coming out and saying, you know what? I've had enough. Not nearly enough people are doing it. And that's why the, the woke people are still advancing and winning. But that's what's giving me hope is that with enough time, there'll be a domino effect where people will start speaking out and will cause more people to speak out and so on. And then eventually the woke stuff will die out. All right, let's move on. Let's keep those uh, super chat Questions coming. David the Goliath, thank you so much. I think that's your second contribution today, so I very much appreciate that. I've always been a secular liberal, but all this trans ideology, wokeism are forcing me to vote right. But I struggle when I see right-wingers deny science and evolution. I will still vote right now. Uh, yeah. Uh, by the way, that speaks to a point that I made in the chapter one of The Parasitic Mind, where I, was, I wanted to... Uh, preempt people saying, hey, how come you're only attacking uh, leftist ideas? And again, let me repeat what I said in this book, and I've said a million times since. Uh, I attack the leftist ideas because I operate in the university ecosystem. The university ecosystem is almost exclusively dominated by leftist professors. Every single idea pathogen that I describe in the parasitic mind was promulgated, was spawned by leftist professors. So that doesn't mean that there aren't parasitic ideas on the right. It just means that every dreadful idea that has now destroyed our society, regrettably, comes from the left because it's the left that controls all of the cultural and intelligentsia institutions, right? So therefore, that's why I attack the left. So it's like if I was an oncologist and you say, "But, uh, but doctor, how come you don't care about uh, how about you don't care about diabetes?" Don't you think diabetes is important? Don't you think that a ruptured Achilles tendon is important? Why focus always on cancer, doctor? Well, because I'm an oncologist, okay? So I am a parasitologist of the human mind focusing on the most dreadful of idea pathogens, which are all the idea pathogens that are promulgated in the university setting. That doesn't mean that the right is not capable of complete imbecility as pointed to by this gentleman. So thank you for that question, David the Goliath. Moving on, moving on. All right, here we go. Elston D'Souza, message retracted. Okay, sorry to see that. Maybe you'll come back. 
Uh, Elston D'Souza gives another small contribution, appreciate it, but without any uh, uh, questions. Moving on. All right, here we go. Uh, moving on, moving on, moving on. Oh, okay. Elston D'Souza comes back. What do you think about tele-evangelists? I love that. Uh, I mean, what do I think about them in terms of their religious message, in terms of their persuasion strategies? I think most of them are utter bullshitters. They are bullshitters who are very, very good salesmen. They have developed a set of persuasive strategies that work well on people. So if you ask me, are they good at influencing people? Yes. Are they selling a product that is worthwhile? No. Now, again, that doesn't mean that doesn't at all mean that I am hostile to all religious dogma. That's not what I'm saying. But most of these guys are really snake oil salesmen who have mastered the ability to identify people's insecurities, cater to them by using a particular type of language, messages of promissory hope, uh, using the religious vernacular to then get people to say, right? So there's, for example, prosperity theology. You know, God wants you, for you to be rich, he wants you to donate $1,000. By the way, I am the final prop. By the way, if you go look at what Jesus looked like, according to Dutch artificial intelligence experts, take that photo. It's basically me. So maybe I am the final prophet. And this is why you should be, if you want to be rich, you want to be amongst the divine, you should be giving me a lot of money on Super Chat. And certainly to make up for the huge amount of money that was stolen from me. So there you go. It is godly. It is divine. God wants you to give me Super Chat. Go ahead, do it. That's your salvation. So that's what I think of tele-evangelists. They play on people's insecurities to enrich themselves. They're assholes. Okay, next. Sid Dave. Eileen Wright, but unfortunately, my girlfriend, who I really love, is like a woke liberal. I just pretend to agree with her when any controversial topics come up, especially when, you know, you're in the mood for some loving. That's not when you want to be bringing up, why are you such a woke schmuck, dear girlfriend? Instead, you say, you know what? I love every part of you and especially your woke mind. Now let's play some Barry White and get some action going. Uh, what to do in this case? Is it healthy for both? Look, uh, all kidding aside, I think that uh, a, a any meaningful relationship and certainly one, a romantic one like you have with your girlfriend has to be founded on honesty. And so if on something as consequential as some of these issues that relate to politics and values and beliefs and, and so on. If you can't communicate each of your positions openly and honestly, then I don't think that the long-term future for that relationship is uh, is likely to, to, to occur. The viability is, is unlikely to, to hold. I actually discussed this in the next book where I talk about birds of a feather flock together. The research shows quite clearly so I, I hope that I don't scare you here, Sid Dave. Uh, the research shows overwhelmingly that birds of a feather flock together. Now, flock together on which dimension? On values, on beliefs, on worldviews. Uh, so if, you know, you are, you know, clearly anti-woke and she is woke, uh, 
she can grow out of her imbecility or not and then that could pose problems so i would suggest that if it's just someone that you're having fun with then maybe you guys don't need to get serious about these conversations but if it's someone that you wish to have a long-term future with then you might want to be addressing some of your uh, differences and by the way not to imply that people who are married can't have deferring opinions on on politics but when it comes to the foundational values that drive their lives typically they have to be congruent and aligned my god am i espousing some wisdom here let's keep those super chats going 193 people i don't think we've gotten to 200 ones please contact your friends tell them i still i'm still going to stick around a bit i'm not having dinner i'm hungry but you know what i'm even hungrier to be hanging out with you guys so let's keep those questions coming i'm having a lot of fun i hope you are having fun too let me scroll down oh here we go point zero two four how about Croatia winning for once? I'm assuming you mean Croatia uh, in the World Cup. Well, they came close. They got to the final for a small country. Getting to the World Cup final is unbelievable. They're not going to win it. Their average age, I think, is maybe 134 years old right now. You know, Their youngest player is maybe 86 or 89. Uh, Luka Modric is roughly my dad's age. My dad is 92. So uh, so I think we need to infuse a bit of young uh, blood if we are to win in a World Cup. They came close to winning it four years ago when their average age was only 86. So maybe they could win it. But if I were a betting man, I'm sorry to say 0.024, I'm not betting on Croatia. But for a small country, they're amazing. And Luka Modric, unbelievable. I don't think I've ever seen or seen very few midfielders who have the work rate of Luka Modric. The guys on the left, on the right, up, down, he's goalie, he's center four, he's everywhere. And he's, as I said, probably right now close to 100. So pretty impressive. Let's go on. How do you get off marijuana? I'm not going to answer that one because I don't see a super chat next to it. Hold on. Uh, okay, I, I missed a whole bunch. Let me go back. Hold on, hold on. Where is it? Hold on. I can't stand how I cannot. Let me just keep going back to the last one. So I'm going back to find where the Croatia one was. So I can do all of them. Hold on. Okay. How about Croatia? So now I'm going down. Okay. Down, 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 down. Mark Martin. Hello, Gad. Gad spelled with two A's. Hmm. And Gad without the G capitalized hmm you capitalize black people black is capitalized but my first name is not capitalized i shall forgive you i bless you my son there is a gentleman named oh here we go here we go i think i'm gonna block anyone who keeps there's a gentleman named rollo tomasi he is a content creator and author and he's a big fan of yours and would love to do an interview with you in the future this is probably the one millionth eight hundredth time that i've gotten this okay i got it thank you one day hopefully we'll have a chat i appreciate it i don't know if all of these folks who keep writing to me this are are Ro rollo rollo himself or he's sending the people but i don't think i've had a more frequent i don't even know if it's trolling at this point it's just endless non-stop why aren't you speaking to this guy why aren't you speaking to this guy okay whatever we'll speak i hopefully one day i mean i get like a, a thousand invitations in a week give me a break yeah 
Atarva Shukla, I just noticed you think, what are your views on PM of India, Mr. Narendra Modi? I don't see a super chat, so I'm going to have to skip it. Life is about reciprocity, son. I give my time. I give my wisdom. Tit tat, you know what I mean? Atarva Shukla, thank you so much for that contribution. But was that the person who, oh my God, boy, did I just eat my words. I just read a, a question from Atarva Shukla, not having seen the super chat, I chastise him for not super chatting me. I roll, I go down. What do I have? A super chat. Should I get my my uh, self-flagellating whip to whip myself for having been an asshole? I apologize. Uh, what do I think of him? Listen, I don't know much about him. What I could tell you is that he sent me a personal letter on Republic Day of last year having chosen me as, you know, kind of, you know, the global thought leader that he admires and so on. And it's hard to not be humbled and honored by such a letter. You have the prime minister of the largest democracy in the world, 1.4 billion people, I think, writing to you personally, this incredible letter, which was the, you know, which the high commissioner, his excellency, uh, the high commissioner of India to Canada, uh, advised me of that, you know, message. And then I went to Ottawa to to meet him. And then, you know, I gave the prime minister a signed copy of the Parasitic Mind. So uh, in this formal capacity, you know, he seems lovely. He seems down to earth, right? Uh, you wouldn't think that he might know me. And yet here he was sending me this beautiful personal letter. So on that front, um, uh, I, I think very highly of him. I don't know much his policies and the internal politics, domestic politics of India. So I can't comment on that, but certainly as a, what appears to be a very down to earth guy, he's top notch. So thank you for that. And again, my apologies for having presumed that you would be parasitic and asking me a question without super chatting me. So thank you, Atharda, Atharva Shukla. Now we've got couch looking good, man. Love you, brother. Well, aren't you sweet? Thank you so much. Thank you so, 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 so much. Uh, I felt as though the last few days I was in Florida not eating right. So I'm trying to cut it back down because next week we're leaving to Southern California uh, and uh, I'm going to be in a bathing suit. And by the way, even when I walk on the beach in a place where I think, you know, whatever, hope maybe nobody's going to recognize me, people come up to me. So I got an image to keep now. I got to be ripped because when some fan comes up to me, as happened, you know, several times in Florida when I was there, uh, I need to look ripped. So I need to starve myself a bit and train so I can keep looking good for you guys. So thank you so much, Couch. Really appreciate it. You're very sweet for your sweet comments. John Ashley Smith, freedom is also the freedom to fail. Fair enough. And by the way, I talk about uh, the importance of failure in my next book, the one that I'm about to submit to my publisher. I talk about uh, on the importance of persistence and the anti-fragility of failure. So, John, if that's something that interests you, I would highly check out uh, that book. Oh, Athar Atharva Shukla comes back with, Hi, God, your views on PM of India. I think I already answered that, so thank you so much, Atharva. I hope I'm spelling that right. And our landline is, is, is ringing. It never rings, so I don't know what's up with that. David the Goliath, I really like Jesse Lee Peterson and many other black uh, conservatives, but the left demonizes them as race traders and Uncle Tom to silence them. Yes, of course. You know, uh, Candace Owens is a, is a, a black supremacist. 
uh, Larry Elder is the black face of white supremacy. That those are literally true statements. This is like the LA Times had said that when he when Larry Elder ran for uh, governor of California when they were trying to recall Gavin Newsom, uh, he was called the black face. Imagine you're calling a black man the black face of white supremacy. It's unbelievable. It, it, it's as if it's God sad satire. Uh, Jesse Lee Peterson, I've been on his show. Uh, for those of you who don't know him, he always, whenever you speak, you give an answer. He goes, amazing, amazing. And so go check out my chat with him. Every time I answered a question, his response was amazing. So lovely guy, really enjoyed him. Maybe we'll hook up when I go down to SoCal because I think his show is out of Southern California. I'm already planning on doing a few shows. Although a lot of the people who used to be in Southern California are, have now left. Uh, Joe Rogan's not there anymore. I did a show in Austin. Uh, Dave Rubin is not there anymore. He's in Florida. So a lot of the regular circuit that I used to do when I would go to, to California, they're no longer there. Uh, okay, so thank you for that, David the Goliath. Moving on to, okay, we've got, let me put it back, Keith Gardeck. Currently, the number, the high, not that I want to create hierarchy, but the, the, num the highest uh, donation today on uh, today's live stream super chat so thank you so much mr gardek uh, much appreciated dr Saad. you have been you have been the most no you have been the most effective treatment for COVID and wokeism <laughs> my treat for dinner next time you are in chicago bring your own body armor <laughs> instead of bring your own booze uh yeah well aren't you sweet thank you uh i'm gonna tell you something i'm not a deep i, I know i know I'm going to lose you as a fan because you're from Chicago. I'm not a deep, uh, deep dish pizza guy. I'm, I'm not. I'm a thin, thin, not, it's not super thin, not wimpy thin, not castrated thin pizza, but you know, smaller, more classy, more Italian style. You know, the, the 400 inch, you know, 73 pound, you know, let's die tonight while eating our first slice of 8,000 calories pizza. It's not my thing. So if we're going to Chicago for dinner, uh, it better be, I don't know, a steak or something. So thank you for that. Very much appreciated, uh, Mr. Gardek. Cheers. Uh, by the way, I've only been once to Chicago. I gave a talk at uh, Northwestern University at their business school, Kellogg. I think it was in 2013. I was talking about this book, The Consuming Instinct, which I hope, by the way, people go and check it out. It, th this book came out at a time when it was the worst of the market I got the contract and I think maybe 2009. So it was around the, the whole, you know, financial crash. And then the, the, the publishing industry had completely collapsed. And so when the book came out, it was really in a very, very rough uh, economic time. And, and it was with a small publisher, Prometheus. And so I think that it never really got, I mean, it, it, it did well, it did okay, but nothing like, for example, the parasitic mind. And so I think that it would be great if people would kind of rediscover it because I wrote the consuming instinct as a trade book version, a book for the masses about how to apply evolutionary psychology to consumer behavior. So when I wrote this book here, uh, I'm trying to move the evolutionary basis of consumption in 2007, that was an academic book. It was a, a book meant for other academics. So it's a lot more technical, but this book is written for the masses. So I think you guys would probably enjoy the style very much. So definitely uh, check it out. Uh, but I, I'm only mentioning it now because that was my only time in Chicago. I visited Northwestern and gave a talk then and there at, in 2013. Uh, all right, moving on. 
we've got about half an hour left people uh we never cracked 200 so i i need to find a way at some point to uh, make these a bit more professional more more lead time for the promotion of when we're doing our live streams maybe i should make them regularly you know every monday at eight o'clock at night is when we do or something like that which by the way is it's probably what's going to happen when i end up moving to i'm going to be hopefully signing a contract with the locals and rumble at some point soon uh and uh part of the deal will involve having these regular live streams. And so uh, hopefully I'll be able to draw a lot more people, but you know, for doing it impromptu, having a couple of hundred people is not bad at all. Nick Vanderklok is back. Thank you so much. Which core values drive you in life and how do I develop or discover my own core values? Wow. Those are big questions. I can answer the first one very easily because I know myself, I don't know you as well uh, or, or at all. Uh, my core values, as I explained in chapter one of The Parasitic Mind, uh, are truth and freedom, okay? Those drive everything. Without those, everything else makes no sense. You need freedom, and you need, in order to pursue truth, you need freedom, and you, you need, you, they, they kind of feed off each other in a, in a feedback loop. Uh, and so those are the ideals that drive me. Uh, as far as your own core values, it's very, very hard for me to, to answer without knowing a lot more about you. How do you discover them? Uh, again, it's very hard because there are several ways by which you could, you could, you could, you could, you could list all of the core values that people have studied. Uh, there are all sorts of studies that look at, you know, here are the 16 core values around the world and how do people rank them around the world? And you can actually go through the exercise of ranking them. For example, you could say on a scale of zero to 100, uh, zero is the least important, 100 is the most important. How do I rank these values? So you can actually go through the psychometric testing to, to gauge those empirically, or you can just engage in introspection and say, you know, of all the decisions that I've made in my life, all of the things that rile me up, all, and that's that's what I did when I was, explaining in chapter one of the parasitic mind why truth and freedom were the fundamental ideals, the fundamental values that shape all of my life decisions. Uh, I thought, okay, well, let, let me go through a deep introspective exercise and engage what they are. But for me, it was very obvious because they've always been the two key driving values. And by the way, if they are the two fundamental values that drive your life, you will see their signature in many different domains in your life. This is actually a very, very deep and important point. So let me explain. When I say, for example, freedom is one of the fundamental values of my life, the first thing you might think is, oh, I mean freedom of inquiry and freedom of uh, religion and freedom of speech because those are the things that I talk about in the, in the parasitic mind. But if you remember in the book, I applied that freedom principle or core value to many other domains. So for example, when I used to play soccer, I played the number 10 playmaker position. What does that position allow you to do? It gives you the freedom to roam around the field anywhere you, you see fit to exploit spaces, to exploit opportunities. So, so that desire for freedom doesn't just manifest itself in the circumspect, you know, domains that you would think of freedom in science, freedom of speech, in everything I do. In the next book that I'm going to talk, that I, that I just wrote, I talk about occupational freedom, that one of the things that I love about my job is that I'm not constrained to a particular physical location, of a particular timetable, right? If I were a pilot, I know that I'm taking, I am 
I am, you know, flying the plane from Montreal to Japan on such and such day. I'll be in this plane. That removes my scheduling freedom, my 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 movement freedom, right? So, so again, I think what you need to do is go through whether it be an empirical exercise or an introspective exercise and say, you know, what are the key core values that keep manifesting themselves in very different areas of my life? And then you'll find your core values. My God, that was a good question. And I hope that you appreciated the answer. Uh, let's move on. We got some more folks. Oh, we got Bartolome Esteban Murillo, who's back. Have a wonderful night, Dr. Sal. I have to tend to my responsibilities. Cheers. Thank you. Always. This person is so, it's like an old soul, such an elegant, gracious way of communicating, always so polite, always so uh, uh, just the proper etiquette. So thank you, uh, I'm going to guess, Mr. Murillo, for having that old school code, that beautiful, gracious quality. I very much appreciate it. I hope you haven't left yet, left yet because you just received a lot of uh, compliments. Okay, I just I just went down, so I have to go back to find all of the ones. People, let's keep those super chats going. We've got about 24 minutes left. Okay, here we go. Uh, MSKJWD, I'm not sure what that stands for. Do you think your books will pair well with Austrian economic theory? What are your thoughts on uh, Thomas Sowell? Uh, I mean... Some elements, yes. Uh, you know, my books are not at the, they're not at the macroeconomic level, right? So it's, so if you mean my books, so, I mean, sure, the freedom elements might link up in some ways. These books are not at the macro level. They're at the micro level of what are the evolutionary drivers that drive consumer behavior, that drive decision-making, and so I'm not sure that they are operating at the same unit of analysis, uh, but sure, there might be some elements that are, uh, you know, uh, congruent with each other. Uh, what are your thoughts on Thomas Sowell? Well, I released a, a sad truth clip uh, maybe about a year ago, uh, which also was an article that I, a, a short article that I posted, you know, 10 reasons why you should love Thomas Sowell. So rather than repeat it, just go read it. And uh, or or watch the clip on my uh, uh, YouTube channel or on my podcast. Uh, as you might infer, uh, I think he's fantastic. I think he's the original anti woke uh, destroyer. He was going after the the bullshit militant feminists and all the other bullshitters, you know, in the '60s when most of us were either not born or were in diapers. Uh, he's uh, he's committed to. The empirical method. He is intellectually honest, whereby he just lets the data speak for his positions. He's not an ideologue. Uh, he doesn't suffer fools gladly. He, he's fantastic. Uh, he is certainly one of the ones that I would most like to have a conversation with uh, on my show. A few years ago, I had tried and we had almost made it happen. Uh, but you know, uh, Doctor Sowell is you know now well into his nineties. He doesn't do many of these anymore. He's quite a recluse, so I'm not sure that it'll be feasible. But you know, hope hope springs eternal, so maybe we can make it happen. So, what do I think of him? I think he's great. Uh, okay, next, Joko Spilling, how to quit marijuana? Do, do psychedelics help? Uh, 
here's an example of where I'm going to be uh, epistemologically or epistemically humble and say, I don't know enough about it to uh, pronounce a position. So I don't want to mislead you, but I can offer it and in in, I can offer some advice in the most general of ways in terms of a mindset, which hopefully can then be applied to the particular uh, situation that you're trying to redress. I lost 86 pounds at the age of, in my mid-50s, and I've kept it off. So the epidemiological reality is that about 5% of people are able to lose any amount of weight, let alone 86 pounds, I mean, any amount of sizable weight, you know, 10, 15, 20 pounds, let alone 86 pounds, let alone in your mid-50s, let alone maintaining it off now for for a while now you know my 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 set point has been recalibrated it's not as though i'm i'm yo-yoing i'm now well into the low 170s i've never been able to crack 170 yet but i'm there now for quite a while uh i can almost guarantee that to lose 86 pounds at my age and to keep it off is certainly as hard if not 50 times harder than to quit marijuana so while I can't answer the specifics, the, the specific recipe of how to quit marijuana, I can offer you the psychological steps for quitting anything. And it is discipline, 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 persistence, dogged effort, discipline, discipline. Every single day, you're hungry. You want to eat. I didn't get to 256 pounds because I made always the right decisions. I obviously made consistently poor choices that put my caloric, you know, my over calories in any given day more than how much I've expended calories that day. And so now you have to reverse that. And, you know, your system is an inertia. You've got your fat cells. It's very hard to lose weight and keep it off. So every single day you have to be in calorically deficit mode. You have to be fighting against the hunger. I, I train between 15,000 and 2,000. Uh, let me actually show you right now how many steps I have today. And after when we finish today, okay, so here we go. Can you can you see this? Uh, I don't know if you can see it. 13,000. Oh, you can't see it. I guess it's, why, why can't you see it? It's 13,858. So meaning that I haven't gotten to 15,000. Every single day I need to get between 15 and 20,000, no matter what. I could be tired. I could be coughing. I could need to work on a book. It could be minus 20 outside. Uh, you know, I could, my knees could be hurting. It doesn't matter. I have to get to 15 every single day for years. I do it every day. I have to eat between 1500 and 1700 calories. I'm hungry. I want to eat more, but I don't. And what happens after a year, suddenly I'm back to being thin. Like I was in 1993 or whatever it was that I was this weight. So uh, there is no trick. It's tough. But through a personal commitment and a discipline to do so, you can do it. That's it. So that's why a lot of these addictive behaviors, whether it be I'm addicted to alcohol, I'm addicted to food, I'm addicted to marijuana, involve the same psychological principles to break through these addictions. So in that sense, I think I, I hope that I've offered you some uh, some insights but the specifics of how you wean yourself out of marijuana, I don't know because you're ready. I've never taken one puff in my life. So I wouldn't be able to help you. Dr. Harleen Ginzel, 
Right-wing movements in India, Israel, Europe, and U.S. should collaborate with each other. Our enemies is the same, the woke left and Islam, Islamo-Nazis. Uh, well, certainly, you know, there's a great book by Jamie, I can't remember, uh, Jamie Glazoff. Jamie Glazoff, I'm giving him here some uh, unsolicited promotion. He wrote a book maybe 10 years ago called United in Hate. And, and who is united? He united the left and Islamists in their hate of the West. So Dr. Quinzel, I highly recommend you check out uh, Jamie Glazoff's book. I've been once on his show. I'm not sure if he's still active. He's someone who's quite a vociferous anti-left and anti-Islam critic. So you might uh, have some simpatico principles uh, to, that you share with him. Thank you for your donation and for your comment. Moving on. Sean Salisbury. God, I mean God. It's a very, very easy mistake to make. I can see why you made that mistake. Have you ever done or thought of doing stand-up comedy? Love your humor. Reminds me of George Carlin. You're very sweet. You know, it's very interesting because uh, I, you know, sometimes I almost, not, not I get offended, but, you know, as many people write to me saying, oh, my God, I, I love you, professor. You know, you I love your research. I love your book or whatever, you know, my intellectual stuff. But I get probably as many people who write to me for my humor. And so I guess I shouldn't be offended because if you've got both, hey, take the compliments. Uh, I sometimes feel as though some people kind of now associate me with a lot more being kind of the funny, humorous guy, whereas, of course, I'm also a very serious professor. But... Uh, but you're right that uh, there is something, if I can speak of myself, that's quite unique about my humor. And it's something, by the way, that I've always had. Uh, I remember when I was, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, my parents would always uh, comment about how I had this very sharp tongue where I would satirize. Like, in other words, they would kind of sit around and I'd start doing these kind of imitations of them where I would take their some bullshit thing that they're doing and I would aggrandize it for comedic so, so that talent, which I now use to make fun of the woke and the rest of these idiots, is something that I've always had. It's just been part of my personhood. So thank you very much for it. It is uh, wonderful to be mentioned along with George Carlin. He was a great comedian. So I really appreciate that. Uh, so thank you for that. Shu 83 What's your opinion of Pierre Polivier? I don't know much about him. Uh, I know that he's kind of now the the hot uh, conservative guy. I know that Jordan has had him on his show. I get the feeling that while he may be better than some of the current guys, he may not be as much of an change in, uh, agent of change as I would like. I don't know if I'm right or not because I haven't really uh, delved into his policies. He seems to be an entrenched politician. I like guys. One of the things I loved about Donald Trump is he wasn't a politician, which by the way, is how the original system was supposed to run. You, you were not supposed to have a political, a professional political class. People were supposed to have successful careers, decide to go and do public service, right? So presidents of the United States were lawyers and, you know, other professions, businessmen, and then they would run but they, they didn't start at 27 and then for the next 50 years were parasitic bullshitters within the political class. And what I don't like about all these folks, including this guy, is that it seems as though that's all he's ever known. I'm, I hope I'm not misspeaking. I don't know enough about him. But he's a young guy who I think has always kind of had his sight on becoming a, an important politician. I don't like that. 
I like I, I want to see the neurosurgeon who decides to go into politics. I want to see the political science professor who decides to go into politics. I want to see the lawyer who decides to go into politics, but then leaves. It goes back to his career. I want to see the artist who decides to go into politics. I want to see the housewife who decides she can affect change and decides to go into politics after having raised four kids. I don't like the political class. I think they're parasitic bullshitters who, who scam the system. And so that's not an indictment of him. It's an indictment of his profile, people who've always been in politics. I like people who have already demonstrated that they can be successful at life, who then decide, let me now go be successful in politics and then resume my life. That's the person I support. I mean, assuming that their policies are aligned with, with mine. Okay, let's go on. Matthew Levitsky Kaminsky, thank you for your uh, donation, but the message was retracted. Oh, Matthew Levitsky Kaminsky comes back. Did you ever consider basing a university course on your past literature, such as the parasitic mind and future books? Uh, yes, I have. Uh, you know, one of the difficulties for me, uh, thank you for that question, is that I, I literally have like seven full-time careers. So, you know, just, not just, being a full-time professor, I mean, a professor at, at my level, you know, a full professor, I used to be a chaired professor. I have a very active research lab research grants, publications, scientific papers, editorial stuff, grants. That's a full, crazy, intense, high-pressured career. But I don't just do that. I do that. I do these live streams. I do speaking engagements. I do media. Uh, you know, I write books for the masses. I write academic books. I do consulting. I, so I'm all over the place. And so there are so many things that I want to do that I just haven't found time to do. So one of the things that I would love to do which I might end up doing when I do the locals and rumble deal, hopefully is to put, uh, courses, uh, for subscribers. You know, here's a six part. Here's an eight part course of, on the parasitic mind, one chapter at a time. Here is a 10 part lecture on evolutionary psychology. Here is a six part lecture on psychology of decision-making. So it has been a long time goal of mine to, create these online lectures for consumption typically i think behind a subscription model and i don't want to say too much but i've already been approached to do a a course like that for a new project that is starting with someone that many of you would have heard of i i don't want to say anything until the deal is signed uh but yes so so definitely there is uh a vision of doing some of this stuff online. So thank you for that question, Matthew. Moving on. Sid Davis, thank you for coming back. Please do a call and show. It will be awesome. Now, I don't know how that would work. Uh, so do you mean it's the same thing as a live stream, but instead of me just reading, uh, 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 you know, your questions, you would actually call me if that's what you mean. I don't know how the technology to set it up, but maybe if and when I join with Rumble and with uh, locals, maybe that's something that we can look into. So thank you for that uh, suggestion. Okay, let's move it on. Keep those things coming. We've got about 10 minutes left, people, and then I'm going to go and eat, and then I'm going to train some more. And then tomorrow, as I said, I've got two shows. Uh, I'm that's another job I have. I host... Uh, sad truth. I have a podcast. It's just endless. Sorry, I'm looking for all of your any questions that I might have missed. 
hold on a second. Or said Davis, okay, I covered that guy, so I'm going to the next one. So you've only got a few minutes left, please, to much love from Miami, Florida. Thank you so much. Have you ever spoken with James Lindsay? No, I haven't. These are not, uh, I'm just going through, I, you know, I feel so bad that I can't read all these, but again, guys, you got you to gotta super chat me. Daniel Usta. Uh, hi, Professor Gad. Huge fan. Question, as an expert in the topic, how does one become great? <laughs> well, well, I mean, it depends. Thank you. That's very sweet of you. Uh, it depends in what field, right? To be great in the in, in, as an artist is very different than to be great as an author, which is very different than to be great as a stand-up comedian. So it's, it's the question is so general as it is impossible to answer with specifics. But I guess what what here's what I can answer. What are some attributes that are needed to be great irrespective of the domain of excellence that you are trying to pursue? So that's how I would answer or reframe your question. And I think it's hard work, hard work, hard work, hard work, and hard work. Those are the five. Of course, you have to have an innate talent. Lionel Messi could not have been Lionel Messi if he hadn't been born with the unique combination of genes that made him the right height. He is of, of the right height, the right body type, low center of gravity that allows him to accelerate very quickly, switch direction very quickly, very hard to get the ball off him. He's very fast. So he, he already comes with a recipe of innate qualities, but that's not enough. He also trains harder than everybody else. Look at Cristiano Ronaldo, whom I don't, I don't love him as a, he's not, I'm not a fan of Cristiano Ronaldo, but I, boy, do I admire his, his alacrity, his, how hard he works, right? He's 37, 38 years old. Now he's got the body of a guy who's 15 years younger. He eats well. He trains like a maniac. He's always, so it's hard work, right? I mean, these books that I write, they don't magically happen where I just kind of sit around and wing it. It's every day, no matter what, after I've done my lectures, after I've written some academic paper, after I've done my parenting duties, after I'm sitting and writing for four hours, then I'm doing a two-hour lives chat, and then I'm hosting somebody on a show. It's persistent. It's constant. It's dogged. So I don't think you can be great at anything without a combination of innate talents, incredible hard work, dedication, and passion. Right. If you hate what you're doing, then you don't want to do it. Yes, of course, you know, I might make a couple of hundred bucks from this this super chat thing. And thank you all for your. Gen but really, if I don't love doing what I'm doing, if I if I was thinking, oh, God, I can't stand to sit with these guys. I have to answer their stupid questions. Then it wouldn't work. You would see it in me. You would see that I'm not genuine. You would see that I'm not passionate. You wouldn't come back. You wouldn't super chat me. You wouldn't want to hear what I have to say. Why does it work? It's because I'm genuine, because I'm passionate, because I'm excited, because, and so that hopefully that carries to you. So whether you want to be a great author or a great soccer player or a great painter or a great stand-up comic, it's work, 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 work. So that's the secret to being great. Some of the things you can't control, look, some people are innately funny. Uh, as the, the lovely gentleman earlier said, he loves my humor. That's not something that I worked at. It just comes to me naturally. But other things, you have to work at it. I may be a good communicator, but I have to sit for hundreds and hundreds of hours for over a year to write a book. No matter what, every day I got to get up. I got to put in four, five, six, eight hours a day to, to work. So 
there is no avoiding even if you you're Lionel Messi or Michael Jordan you have to work hard so go get it okay guys we're almost done but let me uh so you might want to stop all of your super chats not that I like saying that because I want to make sure that I don't miss anybody who has super chatted me let me just scroll down and make sure that I've covered everybody who has super chatted me here we go do I have anybody left we're almost done we're almost out of time where is everybody I think I must have okay here we go we got Ronnie s dr side who was worse Hitler or Genghis Khan Genghis Khan is seen today as a founder of a great state and people talk about his contributions can this happen with Hitler in like two to three hundred years I don't think so I mean yes Genghis Khan of course if, if I remember my history well he is the conqueror who held the largest landmass of all time maybe somebody can check that and confirm it with me he certainly was no uh, uh was he fuzzy guy he certainly was a big conqueror who did a lot of rough stuff but i don't think he had the diabolical qualities of hitler who said look uh here is a theory i have there is a superior race the aryans there's inferior race the jews the gypsies the gays and so on uh and hey it's a struggle between the races let's systematically exterminate them and in a very cold banal way let's put them into train train carts let's ship them off and very much like an industrial machinery let's just exterminate an entire people that's what made the holocaust so uniquely grotesque right there's, there's been many genocides throughout history it's not as though this is the only and first one but there was something so calculated so methodical so diabolical about the you know the the manufacturing at the industrial scale level of a genocide right like like swiss clocks right here here comes the truck here comes the the but the, the train here is the gas let's bring in the next group let's take out their gold from their teeth let's take i mean it's just really just a machine a, a flexible manufacturing system uh so I don't think that history in 300 years is going to look well on uh, on Hitler. So I think uh, his uh, nefarious place in history, I think, is guaranteed. Uh, so there you go. All right, let's move on. We've got Nick, Nick van der Klok, I think maybe third time today. So thank you so much. What advice would you give to a student who just finish, finishes his psychology master's degree but don't know what career path to take, PhD, coaching, writing? Uh very very different because each one has different uh you know rewards and challenges associated with it uh, i always say that if you have the ability to maximize the trajectory of your education do it have it as part of your you know your cv i'm not saying get a phd just so that you can say you have a phd but i'm saying that if you don't have any external pressures you know i need to go work because i've got young children to feed and i just can't afford to do a phd now if you have the will desire and the ability the financial ability to complete a phd do it you will never lose in having done so even j just from intrinsic perspective because then more doors are open to you then you want to maybe try an academic job you have a phd you want to pursue other things well with a phd more doors in other words fewer doors are shut the more education you have so so number one i would say if you can do it get your phd number one coaching uh look i'm not going to say that every single coach is a bullshitter but i wrote an uh i did a sad truth clip a few years ago 
where I was quite critical of coaching. Most coaching is for people who didn't have the ability, the will, the desire to go on and actually get formal degrees, right? So now there's a coach for finances. There's a coach for how to do setups. There's a coach for, I'm a 400 pound person who's coaching you about nutrition. There's a coach for uh, marriage, but I've been divorced four times. So everybody is a coach, right? I mean, your mom is a coach, your grandmother is a coach. So I don't like the coaching industry, not to imply that there aren't people who can motivate you in the right way, but if everybody is a coach or can be a coach, then nobody is a coach. It's hard to become a psychiatrist. It's hard to become a clinical psychologist. It's hard to become a professor, uh, you know, with, with my uh, CV. It takes 30 years of hard work to be where I am today, right? So uh, so I'm not a fan of the coaching industry uh, because it is very unregulated. It doesn't have very specific credentials. There are very, very few obstacles to, to enter the coaching industry. So I think it's largely, the, so the signal to noise ratio is quite bad. So I wouldn't do coaching. Writing is hard for me to tell you because it depends on your ability to write. I mean, are, are you going to be, you know, most people, you know, almost everybody and their mother wants to be a writer, right? Uh, everybody could be a poet. But the point is, can you make a career of it? Here is some sobering stats. One in 10,000 books published will sell 10,000 copies. Now, 10,000 copies doesn't get you, I mean, even, so in other words, if you are one in, in 10,000 books that reaches 10,000 copies sold, that, that's a very small probability that doesn't make you rich. So in other words, and by the way, that's why I was so angry about the, the tax theft, because I was in one in a million books, and yet Justin Trudeau and the Quebec Francois Legault said, oh, no, no, the money is all ours. That's why it was so hurtful, because it really is this rare, incredible accomplishment that someone else completely steals from you, from under your nose. Well, I pressed the send button and sent them all the money. So writing is difficult for me to tell you, you know, yes, go ahead and do it, because it's a very risky endeavor. So if you're able to have a dual career, you know, you're, I'm just making it up, you're a clinical psychologist, so you have a clinical practice, and on the side, you end up also developing an authoring career. I think that is a less risky strategy than to say, I'm just going to be an author because everybody wants to be an author. It's it's kind of the dream romantic job. You sit somewhere in a Tuscany villa and you write. Yeah, but everybody can open a laptop. Very few people can write things that millions of people want to read. So that's the issue. So I, I would say if you are still able to go on for your PhD, do that first and then come back and see me. All right, we're almost, we really are almost out of time, but I want to at least cover the last few people that are here. We still, oh my God, we still have a whole bunch of people who, okay, so don't, please don't send me any more. Uh, it's Mark Martin. Gad, before you go, do you have a schedule on your desk? Ask me anything, chat. I don't because I'm an idiot because I'm just very impulsive. At one point I say, you know what? I just feel like connecting with the fans. It'll be super fun. Let's just do it. And I just, just say, I'm doing it at five. So I think what I'd like to do, Mr. Martin, is maybe set up a regular schedule. Okay, guys, every Monday, hopefully at 8 p.m., I'm going to be doing one so that hopefully it can build a greater audience. Today, we just reached shy of 200 people. I want that to be 2,000, 20,000. I want a lot more people. And I think the only way I'm going to be able to do that is by not being impulsive and doing it you know, with, 
with a 50-minute lead of promotion. So I don't have it yet, but I promise you that I'm going to work hard on trying to be less impulsive with my Ask Me Anythings. Elisa, right now, thank you so much for your contribution. What are your thoughts on the impact of children growing up with siblings and cousins, unlike how many grow up these days with only one or two siblings? Uh, I mean, there are pros and cons, I suppose. If, if you grow up in a smaller family, you have fewer competitors for whom you are competing for your parents' attention. Um, you know, maybe the way I will answer this is, is via an evolutionary lens. There's a great book by uh, a historian uh, called Frank Soloway. The book is called Born to Rebel. Highly, highly recommend it. Okay? I highly recommend it. It's a book that looks at birth order and how that affects personality development of children. And it's very much rooted, in a sense, in the question that you're asking. Here's the idea. I, I discussed it actually in uh, The Consuming Instinct and I, th I think also briefly in the, this book. And I also have a scientific paper on birth order. The idea is this. This is what Soloway argued. And then I applied it in my own research. Uh, when each child is born, all of the niches are unoccupied. What do I mean by niches? Uh, I'm a good boy niche. I'm a rebellious child niche. All of them are unoccupied. So the first child is born. All the niches are unoccupied. Let's say he takes the I'm a good boy niche. When the second child is born, all of the niches are occupied, are, are un, unoccupied except one that's occupied. So, so I can't take the I'm a good boy niche because that one's already occupied. So maybe I'll become the I'm the rebellious niche. And as you go down the sip ship, as there are few, you are more and more children, there are fewer and fewer unoccupied niches. This is called, by the way, the Darwinian niche partitioning hypothesis. Just what I just told you now was was uh, worth entrance to this live stream chat. Uh, and so what happens is as you go down the sip ship, the later borns have to be more open in their personalities because the problem that they have to solve is more complicated because while the first child had all of the niches unoccupied, the fifth child has many fewer niches that are unoccupied. And so there is no singular answer I can give you, uh, Elisa, in terms of is it better to have more children or less? There are some benefits to having a smaller family and there are some benefits to having a larger one. So, you know, I, I can't give you a definitive one, but I highly recommend if you're interested in these kinds of dynamics, sibling dynamics, check out Born to Rebel by Frank Soloway. Kick Jack, thank you so much. Trudy Klassen in chat asked, housewife here in politics, can you tell me how to answer a prof who insists utopia can be sustainable? I, I'm not sure I understand what the hell is. Trudy Klassen in chat asked, housewife here in politics. Can you tell me how to answer Prof who insists utopia can be sustainable? I, I don't really understand the context of that question. I, I don't know what you mean. Uh, I mean, if you mean the utopia, you know, there is a thing called utopianism a la, you know, uh, when there's a movement, you know, a while ago in the United States, the utopian movement. Today, when we talk about, for example, the woke have a certain utopia that that is rooted in socialism, you know, AOC has this utopian view that we have to refurbish all buildings. We're all going to hold hands. We're going to use our breath to power the, the jet engines through love and reggae. We'll be able to fly the planes. So there, there are these kind of orgiastic utopian movements that are founded in ideological uh, bullshit. But I, don't, I really don't know what this person is talking about, so I can't answer anymore. My apologies. Okay, guys, I really need to wrap it up because... 
uh, they're waiting for me for dinner, but I don't want to walk away from any super chat people. Uh, David the Goliath, have you ever been threatened by trans terrorists or Islamic terrorists for your views? Many people have lost their jobs and physically attacked. The answer is yes, by both many, many times. In 2017, I wasn't, I couldn't go to my lectures at the university without being accompanied by security. The university official came with me to the Montreal police to file a report based on the number of death threats that I was receiving. So yes, I have faced a lot of death threats uh, from all sorts of different groups. All right. ADL 1992, just a donation. Thank you so much. ADL comes back with another donation that's extremely sweet. Thank you so much. And then I think we're at the last one. And he ends it on a strong note. Jeff Horton comes in with, he ties the person who had the largest uh, donation for today. Uh, Mr. Jeff Norton, I'm addicted to virtue signaling. It gets me so high. I'm wondering if you think I can change the world for the better. <laughs> or do you think maybe I'm delusional and should join Woke Anonymous and snap back to reality? I sense that someone is being uh, facetious. I appreciate the humor. Uh, why don't you just put a half of your uh, Twitter handle, the Ukraine flag? Uh, no, let's do it with third. One third Ukraine flag, one third George Floyd superimposed with BLM, and then the other third, Je suis Charlie. You many of you probably don't remember that virtue signal. Everybody became all concerned about freedom of speech simply by putting Je suis Charlie. So do that, and I think it will cater to your uh, virtue signaling needs. Uh, Aaron Aldridge, when are you going to have a chat with Ham Farris? Uh, look, I'm always happy to chat with the Malibu meditator. Uh, I only kind of came out uh, and critiqued him openly when I simply couldn't stomach anymore his intellectual dishonesty and hypocrisy. When he's the man, hmm, namaste, namaste, hmm, namaste. He's such a reasoned guy. But, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Donald Trump was going to uh, martial, uh, institute martial law and the democracy uh, Marshall, nuclear holocaust, everything. I mean, he was completely hysterical. And I just, I got upset at it. I, I couldn't stomach it anymore. But I have no personal beef with him. I, I don't care for or against uh, Fam Ferris. It's all good. I don't care. So if he were to contact me today and say, hey, come on my show, let's hash it out, I would. I don't care. If he didn't, I don't give, he's not in my radar. I always use him as the prototype not because as some of his moronic fans think, I'm obsessed with him. He scores in my ranking of important things right below Ebola in my eyes. I don't care one way or the other about Sam. He's a, he's a sweet guy. I had dinner with him. We've communicated many times. I've been on his show. We were friends. That's all good. I was simply critiquing his Trump derangement syndrome, which struck me as completely insane. Now, if he were a half-decent true intellectual, he'd say, hey, God, you seem to not have taken well to my Trump derangement syndrome. Let's let me come on your show and let's discuss it. But instead, he got passive aggressive. He unfollowed me on Twitter. Little girly stuff, mean girl stuff. I don't give a shit. F off. I don't care. If you want to chat, that's great. If not, don't let the door hit on your ass. On your don't let the door hit your ass on the way out. It's all good. No problem. Frederick York. Okay, I gotta go have dinner, people. Is Tommy is Tommy Robinson a bigot? I don't think so. Uh, I had him on my show several years ago. I think Tommy Robinson is a, a guy who speaks. He's a honey badger. 
I mean, you want to talk about a guy who put his life on the line. He was going, he was being sent to prison where he had to be in the protective custody in prison because the Muslim gangs in prisons were going to cut him up alive. And yet he kept talking. That's a honey badger. I don't think that he's a bigot. I don't know him very well personally. I, I've had him on the show. We've communicated. I think he's just someone who is a defender of, uh, you know, British values. And uh, so he speaks his mind. And you can't really, if you're just criticizing Islam, then that can't be bigotry because Islam is just a set of ideas. It's a belief system that you can criticize. Now, if you go and say, hey, uh, let me do this to all Muslims, then that's wrong because there are nice Muslims, there are mean Muslims. There are nice Jews, there are mean Jews. There are nice atheists, there are mean atheists. But to attack Judaism or to attack communism or to attack Islam doesn't make you a bigot. It makes you someone with a... Uh, free mind that wishes to critique anything that you think is befitting of being critiqued. So I don't think Tommy Robinson is a bigot. I don't think I've heard him say bigoted things, but maybe I'm wrong, but that's of what I know of him. I think he's fine. Guys, we've reached the end. We've gone two hours and 12 minutes. Good luck to me trying to turn this into an audio after I have to kind of download the whole thing. Thank you so much to all those who have uh, offered uh, through Super Chat donations. To those of you that I never got around to uh, answering your questions, my apologies. Uh, there's probably thousands of them on, on the thread right now. Uh, very much appreciate you being here. Hopefully next time I will have more of a lead time of promotion to get you guys ready for some more questions. Thank you so much. Great talking to you and I will see you soon. Cheers, everybody. Take care. Bye.